Hello and welcome to the Psych Summaries podcast. My name is Hannah and I will be having conversations with clinicians, academics and experts that have applications to the field of psychology and mental health. They have many years of experience, meaning they are trusted voices in niche subjects. But I invite you to consume the content with a critical perspective, since a one-size-fits-all approach rarely applies to mental health. I hope you learn something and enjoy listening. Today I'm speaking to Jamie Zeitzer, professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioural Sciences at Stanford University. He is a specialist in sleep biology and circadian rhythms. I love this conversation because Jamie offers such a balanced and real-life input for people who are struggling with or want to learn more about sleep. He understands the importance of it but also the reality of our fast-paced lifestyles that present trade-offs. So, welcome, Jamie. Please, could we start with an introduction from yourself? Sure. So, so Hannah, thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. So, yeah, my name is Jamie Zeitzer. I'm an associate professor at Stanford University. I'm also a health science specialist at the Department of Veterans Affairs Hospital here in California. I've always been interested in neuroscience. I, I got a PhD in neuroscience and neurobiology, and I had gone to a, a small school in, in the States called Vassar. And from there, there I went on to Harvard. You know, it's all been in kind of behavioral neuroscience, but I, I've done studies in, in humans mainly, but also in monkeys, in fish, cats, dogs, rats, mice, hamsters, equal opportunity. You know, if, if not in humans, then, then what best recapitulates, you know, the human condition? I, I didn't even know that you could do research on fish. I have never heard of that before. There you go. <laughs> yes. Um, I, I, there was a student in the lab who, who's doing fish stuff. So I was helping them out with, yeah, how to do sleep research in fish, which is, as you imagine, it might be difficult to get electrodes into a fish brain, but you, you can behaviorally watch fish. And, and anyone who has a fish tells you they sleep. But if you talk to scientists, they're like, oh, no, fish don't sleep. Very, very good. So you just hinted at what your research looks specifically at. So I would love to yeah. ask you about sleep, all things sleep. How much do yeah. we need? Do we need the same amount every night? Does this need to be consistent? And does this need to be at the same time every night? Yeah, so that's a great question. And, you know, there's definitely differences in sleep need. You know, some people need more, some people need less. The general rule of thumb that a colleague told me, and I think it's probably good, is that, you know, if you if you sleep in on holiday, on the weekend, then you probably need more sleep. But if you don't, then you're probably getting enough. So if you only get six hours, but then when you have an opportunity, you don't get any more, you know, you're probably good. You know, that being said, one of the difficult things that we really don't understand and something that, that we've been trying to pursue is understanding kind of what the trade-off is. So if you say, well, let's just say I said, honey, you need seven hours of sleep. Well, what happens if you got six? How much worse is that than seven? What happens if you got eight? Is that a lot better than seven? Are there diminishing returns? For example, you know, if you're an elite athlete, it's going to matter because, you know, improving your athletic performance by like 1% by getting a good night of sleep is going to matter, right? When I play volleyball, 
I got to say, whether or not I had eight hours or four hours of sleep, my skill level is is, is not going to be really impacted that much. If you're looking at work performance, yeah, you're going you're to get some differences. And, and look, there's going to be a difference between getting four hours and eight hours. How about seven hours? Yeah, it's not going to be quite as good. But, you know, again, people have to make these, these kinds of choices. And one of the worst things is when people start to worry too much about it. Because if you start to worry too much about it, then it actually becomes much worse. You know, your sleep gets much worse. The more, the more you worry about your sleep, the worse it's going to be. And so there's going to be a balance. And, and I'm definitely a believer that, in, that regularity is, is very important, much in that it allows you to get a good night of sleep. It allows your body to understand that sleep's going to happen. If you're not regular in terms of the timing of your sleep, it's much more difficult to initiate sleep. Uh, you can actually develop insomnia if it's not regular. And there's all sorts of, of long-term medical issues. And again, this is something that, you know, a lot of people have kind of used kind of scare tactics. Oh, if you have a regular sleep, you're going to get cancer. Well, you know, yes, it is true. People with, with more regular sleep definitely have higher rates of cancer, but it's not nearly smoking and cancer connection. There's a connection. There's definitely an impact. And, you know, if you're very regular, yes, you know, your immune system doesn't work as well. And you're more likely to have all sorts of diseases, metabolic diseases, cancer, Alzheimer's. There's a whole lot of things that have been connected with this. But again, you're talking about small cumulative probability. So basically, I don't want people to worry like, oh, if I have one bad week that I'm going to get sick, that I'm putting my health at, at serious risk. Probably not. Now, if you're talking about years, then probably yes. Okay, so it's not necessarily going to have a significant impact on your health overall, unless it's something over time that people yes. are consistently struggling with. Exactly. So yeah, if you travel all the time for work, you know, if you do shift work, if you're a nurse and, and you've got crazy shift hours, if you, well, when we used to take planes, when, when you would travel around back and forth, yeah, then it matters if that kind of regular irregularity starts to matter. But if it's just here and there, are you more likely to get sick? Yeah, probably. But, you know, th there's a lot of things that we do that that's not optimal. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, it's just like saying, oh, well, yes, ice cream might not be the healthiest option, but it doesn't mean to say that you can't have ice cream every once in a while if you enjoy exactly. it. <laughs> so, you know, we have yes. to live it in moderation. Uh, I, I completely agree. So there's one thing I wanted to ask you about, and it's because I've heard about sleep professionals talking about it, and it's the term chronotype. And yes. I was wondering if you could tell us the two types, I think there's two, and what they mean, because I think it means that biologically your clock might be geared towards being a early riser or a late riser. However, I thought a late riser meant you got up at 11am, but actually I think I read that it was eight. <laughs> I thought, oh, okay. <laughs> well, so it's actually very dependent. So, so you're correct. So there's, there's two general chronotypes. It's basically, you know, are you a morning person or an evening person? That changes with age. If you're 19 years old and you go to sleep at 11 and, and wake up at seven, you're probably considered an early chronotype. If you are 90 and have the same pattern, you might be considered a late chronotype. So th there is a bit of degree. So I, I actually don't like looking at the specific timing 
of, of sleep to kind of determine chronotype. I think people have insight into what kind of person they are. Basically, you know, do you prefer being awake and alert and active early in the morning or in the evening? And I have to say the majority of people are flexible. It's not, it's not one way or the other, but there are definitely people who are very strong chronic. There, there are certain people who, you know, they, they really, they, they can't go to sleep until like three o'clock in the morning. It's extremely difficult. And, you know, there are other people where it's hard to stay awake past, you know, eight or nine o'clock at night. And so people have associated like, well, evening chronotype isn't good. And one of the reasons is that, well, there's nothing wrong with evening chronotype in and of itself. It's just evening chronotype doesn't always fit in with society. And so society often is like, well, you have to get to work at eight o'clock in the morning. So you have to get up at seven which means that going to sleep at three o'clock in the morning probably isn't going to work. And so that's why you often see worse health outcomes with evening types. Evening types often, there are all sorts of, of negative health, health outcomes associated with it. And one of the things that we found and others have found is that, again, it's not really the evening chronotype. It's this mismatch between what your actual behavior is and what your chronotype is. So if, you, if you're an evening chronotype and you have to get up early for family or for work, that's that's just with negative outcomes. And on the flip side, though, it happens less. If you're a morning chronotype and you have to stay awake again for family or work reasons, again, that's associated with bad, bad outcomes. So it's really, it's kind of living against your clock. That's really kind of associated with some negative things. And just while you were talking, I suddenly thought, I've been told so many times that sleep before midnight is double that of the sleep after midnight. Is there any truth in that? Again, it depends on when you normally sleep. So often it, it is thought that in the beginning of the night that the sleep that you're getting, you, you definitely burn off more of what you would call sleep need, right? And so there's a much more robust activity of the brain to kind of, to get rid of this need for sleep. And that definitely happens in, in the first part of the night more so than the second part. But that being said, you know, most people sleep around say eight hours and there's other stuff going on the rest of the night. And we really don't very well understand how much of what's going on in the beginning of the night, at the end of the night, definitely this kind of this sleep need is better dissipated at the beginning. And so, yes, if you're going to sleep at say 10 o'clock and, and getting up at six, then that time between 10 and midnight, you're definitely burning off a lot of that, that kind of need for sleep. Okay, that makes sense. But basically, you don't need to read these articles and feel bad because it's a very personal need. It is. It is. And, and again, if you can sleep from, from 2 to 10, and I have to say that during people's pandemic stays and work at home, one of the groups of individuals who have really benefited have been people who have these late chronotypes and are able to shift their schedules later. So instead of getting up at 7 o'clock in the morning to get to work at 8, they're getting up at 10 and they're much happier and they're getting more sleep. And, and again, it's, it's that they're now sleeping when their body's telling them to sleep. Yeah. Can we talk about the links between sleep and mental health? I've also been reading that sleep and anxiety and sleep and mood disorders are linked. Is this causal or is this just through association? It's a great question. There's a lot of evidence that there is some causality. It is likely a little more complicated 
it is it is probably a situation where there's some underlying pathophysiology in the brain uh, which causes both mood disorders and sleep problems but then what happens is then they feed into each other for example if, if we're looking at depression then you have a situation where the bad sleep then exacerbates the depression and then the de depression then exacerbates patterns of sleep that are not conducive to getting good sleep. So the sleep becomes worse. So you start to, you know, become more lethargic, maybe nap during the day, have difficulty sleeping. So your sleep is worse, which makes the depression worse, which makes the sleep worse. So it's definitely becomes a vicious cycle. Uh, it may not have started out that way. It may have started out where again, there's some underlying pathological condition that causes both but it definitely ends up where they feed into each other and make each other worse. And it's the kind of thing where you're able to help treat sleep problems and indirectly treat these other issues. Because still in society, many societies, there's a real, um, a real stigma about mental health. And so a lot of people, they don't want to get treated for depression or anxiety. But sleep, that's okay. They'll get treated for sleep. And so they get treated for sleep, but actually what you're doing is you're helping them deal with their their depression and anxiety in helping them learn kind of how to kind of get better sleep yeah it's a nice it's a nice way to encourage people to look after themselves as well and maybe notice differences in their in their mood but yeah. I mean that's really interesting that there is starting to be some causal research it does really reiterate the importance of sleep whether that is late or early but just consistent consistency in that so yeah. I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that your speciality is around light and the circadian yes. rhythm. Yeah. So does exposure to our screens, our phones, our laptops, mm. even just our light bulbs, does that yes. trigger changes in our dopamine or impact our overall circadian rhythm? Sure. Yeah. So yes, I, I've, I've studied light for a long time now and as all things, it's it's a little more complicated than what you might read in the paper. So yeah, so light has a potent effect. Anything that you see can potentially have an impact. And in general, the light that you're getting indoors is not going to have that big of an effect if you spend any time outside. So basically what happens is that the most important light vis-a-vis circadian rhythms, sleep, mood, is happening in the evening and at night. However, that light, the brain doesn't look at in terms of absolute intensity. It looks at it in terms of relative intensity. So it says not how bright is it in the evening. It says how bright is it in the evening relative to what you got during the daytime. So basically, if you go outside, right, if you're outside, even say a foggy day in London, it's still going to be about 10,000 lux outside. You know, California, non-foggy day, we got 100,000 lux, right? The brightest room that you're probably going to be in inside is going to be a very well-lit office, right? Which would be about 500 lux. So not 10,000 as you'd be outside on a dim day, but 500. So much, much less. Standard house lighting in Europe and the United States is usually somewhere between 50 lux 
and, and maybe 200 lux and, and, a, and maybe a brightly lit kitchen. You know, bedrooms are often under 50 lux. So if you were to spend all day inside, say, I don't know, raging worldwide pandemic, you never leave the house, then yes, then the light that you're going to get from your screens, the light that you're exposing yourselves in a room at night is probably going to be impactful because you haven't gotten much light all day. You haven't left the house. You haven't gotten outdoor light. That light will become impactful. If, however, you go for a walk just for half hour in the middle of the day, then that light at night is not going to be that important. So that being said, the other thing to consider is what is the light doing? And so when you're exposed to light, it's usually not that you're sitting alone in a room with a light on, not doing anything. That light is enabling you to do something. And is what you're doing with that light as or more important than the light itself? So for example, if that light is coming from your phone and you're checking out blogs, your favorite podcast, you know, Reddit, a game, social media, whatever you're doing, that's going to have an impact on your sleep, on your anxiety, on depression. If you're exposing yourself to things that are stressing you out, it doesn't matter if you've put a blue light filter on or are keeping it super dim or went out and, and was were in bright light all day. None of that's going to matter because if you're doing something that is stressful, that's going to keep you up. So it matters to pay attention to kind of what you're doing and how it's impacting you. I mean, it's very easy to say the best thing to do is put your phone away, you know, put your screens away and read a book. I, you know, that's very nice for, for people who can do that. That's fantastic. Not everyone is able to do that. Maybe you say, yeah, we'd, I'd like to read a book, but you know, my library has been closed for the pandemic for the past year. And so all the books I get now are on a screen, right? Well, that means it's screen exposure, but if it's relaxing you, it's probably worth it. If you play a game and it relaxes you, that's okay. If doing Sudoku relaxes you, great. If checking email stresses you out, that's probably not a good thing to do. It, you have to be aware of the light exposure and, and what it's doing. And again, that if you get lots of light during the day, you can be much less worried about the light that you're getting at night. But people, I think, too often use some of these filters. They wear blue light glasses or they use light filters and change the screen temperature, the color temperature of the screen. And they think, oh, now I'm okay. Now I can do this super stressful thing and it's not going to affect my sleep. Well, that's not so. And, and I'd say many of these things have been, in fact, gamified to ensure that you stay awake longer. So a few years ago, Reed Hastings, who, who's the CEO of Netflix, he says, our biggest competitor is sleep, right? And then they doubled, it wasn't an accident because later they doubled down and tweeted it out the same thing. Netflix has been gamified. So you just hit next episode, next episode, next episode. And you thought, oh, I'm just going to watch one little thing before I go to sleep. And now it's two o'clock in the morning and, and hours have passed. So again, it's kind of being aware that the content matters as much, if not more so, than the actual amount of light that you're exposed to. But again, if you want to minimize the impact of light, I would definitely suggest going out for a half hour walk in the middle of the day. That, that will do 
a heck of a lot more good than, than anything else we can do manipulating kind of indoor lighting. Okay, so when I read that our phones activate and lower dopamine, it's not necessarily the light that is shining on our face from the phone. It's probably more likely that it's the content that we are receiving from. Yes. From. Yeah. So it, again, it's is it is it physiologically possible? Yes. But you know, those experiments are done where you basically keep someone in dim light for 16 hours and then show them this light. And yeah, if you're in dim light all day, then yes, it's going to have an impact. But if you're not in dim light all day, if you should get outside at all. It's, it's really not going to have much of a direct impact. But yes, the content will definitely, you know, that definitely has the potential to, to, to impact what your brain's doing. Yeah, ultimately, it's the stress impacting your brain rather than the, the lights. Uh, I'd be much more worried about that, yes. <laughs> Other things that might interrupt sleep, caffeine and alcohol. I know that one is going to energize you. The other is acting as a sedative. How do they impact our sleep? I also read that coffee has half-life, a quarter-life. It means it's in your system for maybe 12 hours. Does that impact yeah. your sleep? Yeah, so yeah, so so caffeine is is one of these terribly difficult things to study because there there is tremendous variation between people in terms of how long it sticks around in your system. So the half-life is anywhere between two and 12 hours, which basically means is that if I have a cup of coffee in the morning. At noon, in some people, that's gone. The caffeine is totally gone. In other people, it's still like they have half a cup of coffee running around their brain when they're trying to go to sleep. So it's very difficult to look at that. But if you have even just a standard cup of coffee, you know, 300 milligrams of caffeine in the morning, that has the potential to impact sleep at night. And so people have to be very aware of if they're having caffeine, might it be impacting their sleep? Now, again, in some people, it's not because the caffeine's going to be all gone. In other people, even in the morning, it can. You know, we often see older individuals who have this issue where they, they come in and they're having sleep problems. And so you're kind of talking about their lifestyle, what they're doing, what their sleep problems like. And they say, well, you know, maybe you shouldn't have that cup of coffee after dinner. I said, well, I've had a cup of coffee after dinner for 60 years. It's never impacted by sleep. Well, at this age, other things start to break down, not work as well, and now it is. And on the flip side, you know, we've studied uh, undergraduate students, and they can have a couple of cans of Red Bull right before sleep, and it has no impact at all. They are just so sleep-deprived that it doesn't matter. So again, you know, caffeine can definitely have an impact. Many people are unaware of it. Again, some people are very sensitive to it. They're sensitive enough that if they've got, say, a dark chocolate in the evening, that can mess up their sleep because there's plenty of caffeine and dark chocolate. So they're just unaware of it. And it's definitely something which is, is kind of important because, again, most people will say, well, yes, if I have a soda, if I have tea, coffee, they understand that has an impact. But there's a lot of foods that have it as well. And they're just kind of unaware of it. They can have that impact. So, yeah, so on that one side, yes, it can totally have an impact on sleep. On the other side, you've got alcohol. Alcohol definitely helps people fall asleep. Many people kind of use it that way, either on a regular basis. Many people, when they're, when they're traveling, flying in a hotel. And the problem with alcohol is that it can help induce sleep, 
However, the sleep that it is inducing is not, does not recapitulate normal sleep. And typically what happens is that it also causes problems with water balance. And so it dehydrates you. And so you'll often wake up multiple times. So you can initiate sleep, but then you wake up a bunch. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't have alcohol every so often. Again, as you pointed out earlier, it's one of these moderation things. Yes, you shouldn't be having a bottle of wine or a few pints before bed every night. That, that's not a good thing. But every so often, again, I, I don't see it as such a bad thing. Okay, so if you go out with your friends who you get so much benefit from because you get all of that great social interaction, at night it impacts your sleep. You don't need to feel bad about that. No, it's it, look, it's a trade-off. Again, you can have ice cream every so often. You can have bacon every so often. Just don't have it every single day. That's It's probably not going to be, probably not so good for you. Yeah. Okay. Again, back to your own personal limits and also just moderation and being aware that it might impact your sleep. So there are some people that suffer with what is known as insomnia. Mm -hmm. What is insomnia? Is it as common as people say? Yeah. So, so insomnia is, is one of these very fuzzy definition problems. Basically, it's you have a problem with sleep that impacts your daytime function. The problem could be initiating sleep, staying asleep, waking up too early, or just not having good sleep. But the critical thing is it has to impact your day somehow. And usually what that means is that you have some sort of anxiety about your sleep, worry about your sleep you're unsatisfied with your sleep. And so if it takes you, for example, 30 minutes to fall asleep and it doesn't bother you, that's not insomnia. That's not great, but that's not insomnia. If it takes you 10 minutes to fall asleep, which is by the way, totally normal, and it bothers you, that's insomnia, right? If you spend the day anxiously awaiting sleep because you're worried that you're not going to be able to fall asleep. It still only takes you 10 minutes. It's insomnia. If you wake up two, three times a night and you go back to sleep, that's not insomnia. If you wake up once a night and you're anxious about it, that is insomnia. So again, it's not so much the the objective amounts of sleep or the pattern of sleep. It's how it's impacting you. And so that's, in fact, one of the most common therapies is something called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. And one of the things that it's really trying to do is convince you not to worry so much. Easier said than done. And I'm glad I have clinical colleagues who can do this and they're wonderful at it. Me, I'm a researcher, so I say, well, just don't worry about your sleep and it'll be fine. That's completely useless advice. But they are able to actually convince people of it. And in terms of commonality, yes, it's, it's, it's exceedingly common to have some degree of insomnia. And the question is, at what point does it become pathological? At what point does it start to really impact how you live your life? And I have to say, different people have different thresholds for that. And I wish more people took care of it because I, I think that uh, people are often unaware of how much it is impacting their life and how much they change their life to avoid situations that might give them insomnia. And, and I guess I'm not talking about short-term insomnia. There's definitely like short-term insomnia, like 
there's a tragedy in, in your family or you know you've lost your job or you have an argument with a friend that can cause problems and, and i'm not really talking about that you know that's that's kind of a different beast but i'm talking about more about people who just have general problems with sleep and it kind of lasts a lifetime there are people who are just good sleepers i know people who they don't try to go to sleep right because anyone who tries to go to sleep isn't doing it right right they just close their eyes and go to sleep right and, and we hate them people who have problems sleeping we, we don't like these individuals i i think that people have certain brain types that predispose them to this they may have had certain experiences then that make it more likely because you could have someone who might not have a great sleeping brain but have had perfect sleep their whole life because they've never had anything happen to kind of induce this and you've had other people where you know they have a couple of bad nights as an 11 year old and then they're a lifelong insomniac but again as i mentioned there are things that people can do cognitive behavioral therapy is a wonderful kind of intervention unfortunately it's not available to everyone you know in terms of money involved paying for therapy for the number of therapists who are out there there's often the need far outstrips the number of individuals who can do this there are a, num a number of apps and in fact, I believe the NHS has, has approved one of them for use in the UK. And, you know, some people definitely would be helped by this. And it's one of these self-guided kind, kind of things. And, and I just encourage people that if they've tried an app and it doesn't work, it doesn't mean that's, that CBTI won't work for them. They just mean, might need to have more of a one-on-one -on -one kind of interaction for it. Okay. So... Again, it's always coming back to this, but it's down to the individual. It's about working with your practitioner and clinician and what works for some won't work for others. You know, maybe exactly. medication works for some, maybe CBT works for others. It's just how yeah, it is. Yeah, I'm not, you know, I'm not opposed to, you know, there's certain people who are like, no, you should never have medication for this. You know what? If, if you're looking at short term, is it great? Is it perfect? No. It, you know, it'd be much better if you could learn how to kind of take control of the brain and get yourself to sleep. That's wonderful. Not everyone can do that. And again, for short-term insomnia, medication is often a preferable kind of thing. So if you're looking at, you know, your pet died, you can't sleep, you can't function, look, this is going to help. The kind of thing where, you know, if, if taken under a doctor's guidance, it can really be very useful. Okay. And for those that don't suffer with insomnia, do you have any top tips to develop a good quality sleep hygiene prior to going to bed? Yeah. So, you know, I mean, the, the, the biggest thing is regularity. Everything is about how regular you can make the environment. And the more regular that the environment is, what you do before bed, you know, the easier it is going to be to initiate sleep. Ideal setting is like a quiet, dark, temperature controlled room. Not everyone can do that. Again, there are certain things you can do to help that. So, you know, if, if you live in a city, maybe you get a white noise generator to help kind of drown out the noise. But frankly, you know, I, I, I spend a lot of time living in New York City. There's a lot of noise out there and you kind of get used to it. So it's not the worst thing in the world. You know, light, again, if you're living in a city, you're often exposed to a lot of light pollution that comes in through your window. Is it the best thing? No. And you can get blackout shades to, to adjust that. And some people are very sensitive to that kind of light, but other people, not so much. But just kind of being aware of things. And, and a lot of times people are unaware of the things that are going to impact their sleep. 
And this is something that we're trying to, to understand and kind of get people useful feedback. So for example, a lot of people use wrist-worn devices and you know they have apps and it says like, you had a bad night's sleep. To me, that is some of the most useless information I've ever heard. I, I know I had a bad night's sleep. Why are you telling me this? Or even worse, I thought I had a good night's sleep. You're telling me it's bad and now you've just given me insomnia. So, you know, the, the useful kind of feedback is, well, if I've had a bad night's sleep, well, why did I have a bad night's sleep? Is it that I ate too late or that I drank too much or I drank too close to bedtime or I worked out too close to bedtime or it was just a stressful day? Again, you know, that, that personalized feedback of what impacts your sleep. Some people can go out and eat spicy food and then a half hour later go to sleep, no problem. Other people have spicy food four hours before bedtime, and they still have difficulty falling asleep. So again, it's not, oh, you shouldn't have spicy food before bedtime. It's, well, does it impact your sleep? Trying to get that personalized feedback, I think is, is of critical importance because often we're unaware of this because it's not just one thing. It's not just like, oh, it's just spicy food that messes up my sleep. You know, there's 15 different things that are, are messing with my sleep. And so even if it doesn't reach the level of insomnia, even if it's just bad sleep, it took me a while to fall asleep. I woke up too often. It didn't feel good when I woke up. These are the kinds of things that they, you're not going to call it insomnia because it doesn't worry you, but it still means like, well, I prefer getting a better night of sleep. And so what, what would do that? What would, what would enable that? Again, think something like exercise is always this complicated one because like people are like, well, you know, is it good to exercise before sleep? And the answer is, well, it depends on the exact nature of the exercise you're doing and how close it is to sleep. If you are driving too much of a thermal response and your body's too hot, it's going to be very difficult to fall asleep. But if it's a little earlier and now you're on the downswing, it's going to be easier. So again, it's just something that, that people kind of need to be at all aware of that, that whatever they're doing, has the potential to have this impact. Interesting hearing you talk about the thermal response because I, I read that maybe having a bath before bed actually pulls out the heat and cools down your body and that's why it helps you sleep. And it's, again, going back to having a cool room and actually supporting your sleep that way. So it's interesting you talking about exercise not being necessarily to do with the adrenaline or endorphins, but right. actually the body, body temperature. Yeah, we don't know which one it is. We think it's probably both. One of the things that your brain does is that when you initiate sleep, there's a drop in brain temperature, right? Which is usually caused by this drop in body temperature. And that drop in brain temperature activates parts of the brain that help induce sleep. And so if you can cool off the brain and cool off the body, then that's great. And, and in order to do that, by the way, that means the skin has to get hot. So that means you have to be dumping heat off of your skin to cool your core. And so your hands often can feel warmer. And that's an indicator that you're actually trying to cool your body down. Mm, that's so interesting. So, okay, last point. What is our brain doing while we sleep? How many cycles are we going through? And what area of the brain might be benefited? I'm sure it's every area, but are there specific things like memory or cognition that are most impacted? Yeah, pretty much everything is going to be impacted. It's just a question of to what degree. I mean, 
lot of people have studied memory and cognition, and these are definitely better after you know a night of sleep. One of the things that people have been studying recently uh, has been waste clearance. So there's been a lot of interest in basically, you know, you've got all this metabolic waste from the function of the day. You know, you've had a lot of brain activity during the day. So the idea is let's get rid of this waste and this happening at night. So there's been a lot of interest in that, especially as a connection with uh, neurodegenerative disorders uh, like Alzheimer's. Uh, so that's also happening during sleep. And again, it's just a question of, you know, of degree. We like to think that one of the things that's happening, for example, with memory, is that you're moving memory from uh, kind of short-term knowledge into wisdom, right? So, so you're moving these facts or factoids that you've learned during the day, and you're now integrating them with what you already know. And this is one of the things that we think is happening during sleep. And, and so, you know, often, when I'm teaching undergraduates, you know, you get the question of, well, I, I've got, you know, finals the next day, should I pull an all-nighter? Or is getting the sleep better, right? And, and so the answer is usually, well, if you haven't studied at all, probably pulling the all-nighter is a good idea. Knowing something is better than being well-rested and knowing nothing. However, if you're pulling an all-nighter because you just want to get that extra little piece of information that you might not have picked up, that's probably not worth it. Because the next day, first of all, if you haven't consolidated that information, so it's harder to integrate it with the other things you know, and you're going to be less alert during the test. So again, you've got this twofold thing going on where one is sleep is enabling kind of this movement of memory, this improvement of cognition, this waste clearance. But also the next day, if you haven't slept well, you also have decreased alertness, decreased performance during the day. The brain just isn't working quite as well. And whether that's due to sleep or not, we don't know, but we definitely know that if you've been up for say, you know, 30 hours, your brain does not perform as well as if you've been up for say 10 hours. So the cycles are typically around rule of thumb around 90 minutes. So depending on how long you've got four or five cycles per night and, and by cycle, it means you're basically going through different stages of sleep. So we call them non-REM and REM sleep and there's three different stages of non-REM. So you, you go through those, you go into REM, you wake up. So everyone wakes up multiple times every night. You don't remember it, which I, I cognitively, I don't like that idea that I wake up every night and have no memory of this, but this is something that everyone does. It can be for a few seconds, even be for a few minutes but you don't make that memory. And if you have insomnia, don't do this. But if you don't have insomnia, try to remember the moment that you, or the moments before you fall asleep and you can't do it. You don't make those memories. So you don't, you can't remember falling asleep in that way. So if you wake up for a couple of minutes and go back to sleep, you don't remember that. So anyway, you're cycling through these periods of non-REM, REM, wake, and you go through these cycles. Again, they're around 90 minutes. There's some small differences between people. And we don't know if you can lengthen these or shorten them, if that, if that matters. There is probably something to them. So as you go along through the night, the amount of the cycle that's spent in REM sleep is longer. So near the end of the night, you spend longer in REM sleep. At the beginning of the night, you spend longer in non-REM. In the beginning of the night, you spend longer in deeper stages of sleep, like N3. At the end of the night, you're spending more time in N2 when you're in non-REM. So there's these variations. 
And we don't know how this is important in terms of processing all this information, whether or not this steady progression is important. We think that it is, but we don't know. And, and the other thing is we also at this point can't do anything to change it. So it's not like you can do something that can actually change how you cycle or the order of the cycles or the length of the cycles. Yeah, at this point, we really don't understand you know, how that's involved. Yeah, and I think, thank you so much for kind of identifying that you don't know. You as a sleep specialist are not yet aware of everything and we can't just read the latest Vogue article and know about our sleep. It's going to be really individual. It's going to be affected by so many different factors and, you know, our biology and our environment are all different. As you say, even how long you get outside every day has an impact so it's just I guess just being inquisitive and noting things that don't support sleep and maybe things that do that might improve overall but as you stressed do not stress about sleep because it will not help (laughs) exactly that's yes that's I mean the biggest takeaway is sleep's going to happen and the more you worry the worse it's going to be so it's this fine line between being aware of your sleep and worrying about your sleep and and kind of seeing how a good night's sleep might actually improve your day. Because this is the big trade-off. It's not that people are sleep depriving themselves because they want to be cruel to their brain. They're often doing it because there are other things that they are placing a greater value on. Yeah. And so that value might be, well, I think it's important to spend time with friends, right? Even though it means that I'm going to be up and, and have to get up for work and not going to have enough time. That might be spending time with family. It might be relaxing and and watching a movie. It might be going to the gym. It might be, you know, I have to work two jobs and I have an hour and a half commute each way. So there are various things that that are involved in this. And again, it's just understanding and being aware. So it's the kind of thing where you might say, well, I've been out the last three nights very late. Maybe tonight I'll stay in and, and try to get a little extra sleep. So again, it's not saying you shouldn't go out ever. You shouldn't curtail your sleep ever. These are important things. These are important things that you're getting out of life. I mean, there's no reason to, to be a monk and, and have these incredibly rigorous schedules on, on the hope that you're going to live an extra six months. I, I think that you should live your life, but just again, be aware that things in moderation are, are, are probably better and getting a good night of sleep every so often is probably a good thing. And Hopefully we'll be able to say in, in, in a couple of years, you know, what that trade off is going to be like, is it one out of every three nights, one out of every four, one out of every two, what, what's the trade off that really would get you to 90% happiness, 90% health, not even hundred percent. When you move, it takes you half the time to pack 95% of your stuff and the other half the time to pack the last 5%. And we think it's going to be something like that with sleep, where if you know if you can get six hours, maybe that's going to give you 95%. And maybe that extra hour or two is going to give you the rest. Trying to get some core amount would be critical. Yeah. And coming going back to the kind of whole perception thing, I mean, when you said people wake up every night at the end of their cycle, if you perceive that waking up, say you do remember, as insomnia and stress about that, then that's going to cause 
extra stress but actually that's a natural thing so I guess you know it's so much more than actually just the act of saying right you need to get this because one size doesn't fit all I'm just so grateful for you kind of myth busting some of this with me I hadn't even thought about the nuances in a lot of these questions that you've identified. So thank you so much. I'm really grateful that you've done that. It's been a really, really great conversation. Well, I appreciate your time and I appreciate you doing this. I think it's it's a great thing to kind of get the information out there in a digestible way. (laughs) Well, maybe in when the research is there, you can email me and we'll record our next episode and we'll tell everyone what the research says. The the, the real truth of the capital T. All right, brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Hannah. I appreciate your time. Thanks for listening to today's podcast on sleep with Jamie Zeitzer. I will add a link to his research in case you'd like to look further at his work. In particular, he looks at how light exposure has really interesting implications for things like jet lag. Now, I know that's not something that we are necessarily affected by currently, but it is a very interesting area for those interested. If you did enjoy the episode and want to keep up with Psych Summaries, please do subscribe and follow the account at Psych Summaries on Instagram. I will see you next time.